Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have William Polonsky. He's the president of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute. He's an associate clinical professor, part of the University of California, San Diego. So, William, thanks. Or Bill, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Yeah, so tell me, what do you do at the uh, Behavioral Diabetes Institute? Well, I'm by training a diabetes psychologist. I've been doing it for more than 30 years. So we do a whole bunch of different things. So number one, we're still clinicians. So we still see people who are struggling with their diabetes every day. We're also researchers. So I do, do a lot of formal studies looking at psychological, emotional issues with people with diabetes. Well, with my colleagues, we do a lot of training of healthcare professionals, so physicians, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, to help them be more successful working with their own patients with diabetes. What do you notice about people that, that have diabetes when they first get it and their attitude versus having had it for a long time? Well, it depends if we're talking about type 1 or type 2 diabetes. We used to like to think that, oh my goodness, when people are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they must just be incredibly shocked. Our best evidence suggests that's true for about a third of people, but for the other two-thirds, um, they have bigger fish to fry, or they were presuming and had been given some warning it was coming anyway. So it was, might have been discouraging and disappointing, but um, wasn't an enormous surprise. And people's ability to engage with and try and manage their diabetes rather than just avoid it and minimize it over the course of years just goes up and down. What makes it so difficult, one of the things that makes managing a chronic illness like diabetes difficult, one of the number of things, is that for those of us who don't have it, we forget that it's a job and that the day you learn you have diabetes, it means the universe has just said to you, congratulations, uh, I have a new job for you to do. Um, by the way, there's no pay, there's no vacation, you get to do it for the rest of your life, and the benefits are going to be a little invisible to you. It's going to be huge, but at least day to day, the benefits are going to be potentially invisible. And that's a problem across chronic illnesses, but it really is highlighted in diabetes. Mm. So uh, I guess people aren't so surprised because maybe they haven't been eating well, and maybe the, is it because they've been told they're pre-diabetic at some point? Or is it because they tend to be overweight with type two and they, you know, they kind of know from being around that something's going to happen to them? Or why do you think there's not much surprise? Well, the two, there's two broad groups. One group is because we know that type two diabetes is to a large degree, a genetic disease. So odds are pretty good. You've got, if you have type two diabetes, you have people in your family of type two diabetes and already have it. So you have likely been working or had some experience with a healthcare provider who told you that, you know, due to your genetic heritage, due to your weight, due to other environmental influences, odds are pretty good that you're on your way. You might've been told you have prediabetes. There's another large group um, who are unfortunately often diagnosed with type two diabetes while they're sitting in a hospital and they've recently had something else terrible happen to them. And usually that means they've had a first heart attack. 
So someone might come in and say, you've had a first heart attack. Here's how we're going to deal with it moving forward. And oh, by the way, our test results suggest that you also have diabetes. So diabetes is sort of, doesn't even rate to the top of your concerns at that moment. Interesting. And then what's it like for someone that is told for the first few months and then after, let's say, a year and then after a bunch of years? Or, you know, is the milestones mentally when you go from diet controlled to pills to injections to like, what are the mental milestones that happen and why? Mental milestones. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. I think is that oftentimes for lots of people, they're not given much support or education or help. We know that actually a minority of people with diabetes ever get any kind of formal diabetes education. So they're just kind of lost out there with whatever they think is true. Like, oh yeah, I guess I'm not supposed to have sugar. Or they say, oh, well, I have diabetes and I know what happened to my grandmother. So I guess I'm just going to die an early death and that's that. So they're often just winging it in a really unfortunate way. Uh, We also know that if you have type two diabetes in the society writ large, that means in your family, amongst healthcare providers and people you meet every day, there's an awful lot of stigma. Uh, There's a belief that if you've developed type two diabetes, it's your own damn fault for being a lazy, no good, undisciplined human being. Now that's not true, but it's unfortunately the messages that are often conveyed either directly or indirectly. And if you think about it, it really stands out compared to other chronic illnesses. We know that there are other environmental and lifestyle factors that contribute to whether you might develop heart disease, whether you might develop other chronic conditions, but we don't tend to blame people for getting it. But we do tend to blame people for getting type two. And that really works. That's not a very effective way to encourage someone to want to be engaged in making positive, healthy changes every day to try to, you know, deal with this disease. I mean, I wonder if, um, well, I mean, with cancer too, I wonder if people uh, feel like they did something wrong. I guess, I, you know, I know, like you said, it happens with type two, but I wonder what other disease that happens with. I think that's less likely with cancer. I mean, in cancer, if you think about even, and again, it comes down to the words we use. We talk about someone who has cancer as a quote unquote victim. Um, you don't ever think about someone with type 2 diabetes as a victim. The the word isn't used Um, because, again, the presumption, unfair and wrong, is that it's your own damn fault. With cancer, people can blame themselves for thinking, oh, I guess I shouldn't have an X, Y, Z. But there is more of a general sense that, you know, it's luck of the draw to some degree. Mm, That's true. Okay. Well, do you notice, again, in patients as they as they go through diabetes, if they progress negatively, you know, if they start getting comorbidities, if they have to go again from diet control to pill to injections and all that, what happens to them mentally as they progress? Do they just anything special or do they get depressed? Like what happens with people? There is a presumption that there is this downward progression that over the course of years, you're going to need to be in more and more meds. You're going to run into complications and diabetes is eventually going to just get you. And it's the 21st century. That's just not true anymore. So, so there isn't naturally this sort of unfortunate progression. Um, however, it is true that this does happen. And most people, all of us included, are not usually thrilled about being told, hey, you know what, you're going to need to be on additional medications uh, or we need to increase dosages because there is this feeling that, oh, that means my disease, my diabetes in this case, is somehow worse. But that's not true either. Um, You can't really 
measure or know how well or how not well you're doing by how big your bucket of pills is that you're taking every day. And what's really true and something that we, we know much more concretely in diabetes than other diseases is that we can measure and tell you how well or how not well thing, how you're doing and then what your risks are for the future because we can look at your long-term glucose control. We can look at blood pressure and lipids and cholesterol, et cetera. So we have really pretty effective ways of knowing what your risks are. Um, and we know, and I think this is something else that's always a surprise to folks, is that we now understand because, because there's so much good data that with good care and effort, odds are pretty good. You could live a long and healthy life with diabetes, type two diabetes or type one. And what we find in all the programs, structured programs we do for patients or things, the other uh, activities we do, including all our written materials, is how the degree to which people don't know that. There's so much a degree of sort of fatalism and discouragement and sense that this disease is going to get me. And that doesn't have to be true. Yeah, that's why I wonder. So, uh, but again, do you see that patients, uh, are they, like, what are they cognizant of? Are they cognizant of this? Is it totally depend on the patient? You know, like, have you seen an evolution of people's perception over time on how they feel about it? You mean over the years or over the time in which they've had the disease? Both. Um, I would say over the time someone has a disease, again, you don't see any kind of regular progression amongst large groups of people in terms of what you would typically see in terms of people becoming more accepting or becoming more engaging or less engaging. It's just all over the place. And, and, Again, if we think about it as people over the course of time, oftentimes there's lots of people who kind of, uh, in terms of the job of diabetes, they go through periods of time where they may be able to put a lot of effort into it, and then they'll back off from that effort at periods of time as well. And to be fair, it's not because they're bad or stupid or uninformed. It's because it's a job and you get tired of it, um, especially when the pay is pretty bad. Um, and people need breaks and they take breaks. Unfortunately, they often take extremely unhealthy and unsafe breaks. Um, so it's hard to say, it's, it's not, there's no clear, obvious progression. We do see over the years, things have changed. I mean, uh, in general, I would say people with diabetes, and this is gonna vary from region to region, and, but uh, people are more informed about diabetes than they used to be. Um, I know when I started, if I, if I would talk to anybody, any group of patients about what we call an A1C test, which is our, probably the most commonly used measure of, of your average glucose, blood glucose control. Most people never heard of that. Now people are fairly informed and are aware of what that number is and what it means for them. And that's really critical. So, I mean, in addition to this being like a never ending job and people having to make the decision of what to eat and what not to eat, you know, multiple times a day for years, which I can see is completely fatiguing. I don't know what kinds of interventions help and work and you know what what does that mean for you know your clinical practice like what what have what's been observed that works and helps found a lot of things that work i mean one is which i think i've already started saying is that it's really important to have have a sense of hope that this is not a death sentence and that you can do well and live a long and healthy life with this disease so one of the things that we focus on in all of our work with our patients is is letting them know the truth you know real facts we talk about it we show them results from studies that your efforts can make a difference. Um, we also see that helping people to um, arrange things so that they can see that difference is really important. There's a, uh, again, I wanna to get too in the weeds, there's a principle uh, that we psychologists use called perceived treatment efficacy, 
which is a jargony term, it really is just common sense. It means that any of us are more likely to engage in any kind of positive behavior change when you have some short-term tangible evidence that what you're doing is accomplishing something. And if you're engaged in some positive behavior and you don't see any of that tangible evidence, you're not likely to stick with it. And probably the best example is the average person in the US who says, you know, I guess I should go on a diet. And then every day they start weighing themselves. And if the number on that scale never budges, you know what, you're gonna run out of steam. So how do we provide people with diabetes for tangible evidence that what they're doing is working is really key. And that's, so we talk a lot about helping them to make sure they understand about their diabetes numbers, like that A1C test or their glucose test results that they do or they might do every day or multiple times a day or understanding you know, how their average blood pressure level might be changing. We do it in a very simplified graphical way that can help people to see that, wow, my actions can make a difference, which is incredibly empowering when you, when you can share that with folks. What technology or other things out there uh, seems to work and be very useful? Yeah, boy, I'm really glad you brought those two up. If there's, if there's, first of all, there's two things that we've seen that changed dramatically over the past decade or so, is that for people with type two diabetes, we now have an enormous array of different medication choices. And some of those medications are so much better and so much more helpful in helping people to manage their glucose, lower the risk for heart problems, not cause problems with low blood sugars, um, help them to lose weight. I mean, it's extraordinary what's available. But what's, I think, equally important, if not even more powerful, as you've mentioned, is the advent of continuous glucose monitoring, which is still primarily being used in folks with type 1, but we're starting to see the uptick with folks with type 2 diabetes. And this has to be the biggest game changer we've seen. So for the first time, when you're wearing a little device that can tell you not just once or twice or three times a day, gee, I wonder what my blood sugars are, but can tell you what it is right now and every five minutes, all day and all night, and not and can tell you not only what your blood sugar is right now, but where it's going, um, and can send you an alert or alarm if you get into a dangerous level, it's extraordinary. And again, we've been privileged to be part of several large randomized control trials that have, have demonstrated how helpful that can be in helping people to be successful, not just physiologically successful in terms of better glucose, but actually improves quality of life as well. I just wrote a review article about that. Um, so this is really huge, huge. And as the prices come down um, and as insurance covers this better, we feel very strongly that everybody with diabetes in this country and in this world should have access to continuous glucose monitoring technology, at least on some sort of episodic basis, something they could wear for a week or two and go, wow, so that's how food affects me. Gee, that's what exercise does. It really is important. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I've worn one, you know, on and off for a while. My wife has worn one and yeah, it's like really interesting. You know, we'll go to a restaurant and we'll have like, I don't know, a chicken dinner and some places you, you're totally fine. And then some places your sugar goes like crazy and you're like, I'm not going to eat there anymore. I don't know what they did to the food, but it's terrible. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So we, and we see, you know, as CGM continuous glucose monitoring as that industry grows, it really is going to continue just to transform everything. Hey, about your other point though, yeah. um, when, 
you know, people come to me and interview me and they say, okay, look, I don't have any time to talk to you, Bill, but tell us one thing that can make a difference for folks with diabetes. And the one thing that we know, the single thing that can make a difference and help people overcome their discouragement and get more engaged with addressing this disease, is we say as loud as possible, don't do diabetes alone. When you've got someone in your life or someone's in your life who are rooting for you, who are on your side and trying supporting you in your best efforts, it makes all the difference in the world. And that's not just true people with diabetes, that's true for all of us. When any of us are trying to make healthy, positive changes in, your, in their lives, you know, when you're going out to dinner with your wife, if you're trying to follow some way to eat in a more healthful manner, it just, you're gonna be a lot more successful over time if she's willing to make those changes with you. Yeah. Uh, so we, it's just bedrock clear that that's true. The catch is, and what we see in chronic disease and diabetes in particular, is that sometimes, and we've done several studies in this, you may be getting more support from your loved ones. That typically means your spouse, if we're talking about adults, um, you may be getting more support than you want. And this is a problem we call the diabetes police. Yeah. And this refers to loved ones who have decided that God has deputized them to help you manage diabetes, whether you like it or not. And they really are coming from a place of love and caring, but they'll say things like, you know, uh, you know, honey, uh, you seem a little upset with me. Maybe you should go check your blood sugars mm. or, or uh, I noticed your blood sugars are high again. What did you do wrong this time? Or, you know, um, you know, people with diabetes should not be eating anything like that. And there's a tendency, if you start to feel like it, it becomes, if it starts to feel like you're being nagged, there's a tendency to respond as any human would respond, which is to assert your independence in the face of being nagged. And the easiest way to do that is just do the opposite, right? Oh, oh, you don't think I should be eating this? Oh yeah, watch me. And then you just consume even more. Um, so we see these battles in families all the time, which is so unfortunate. So we always wanna be careful when we talk about the power of social support. It means the power of the right kind of social support. And it means encouraging individuals with diabetes and their loved ones to have conversations about what kind of support do you want? What does that look like? How can, what does help and versus policing really mean? You don't want diabolies, I guess. Oh man, that's a great term, diabolies. Thank you, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> you better go get that trademarked immediately. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> love it well so i mean i mean you're probably more aware of this i guess than anybody i mean supposedly from all the stats that i see and are pushed into my face i mean diabetes is is growing like crazy and there's hundreds of millions of people and it's just i mean it's like a tsunami so what um do patients realize that do they feel any that they that, i don't know that does it, is it more okay to be diabetic because so many people are? I mean, what's the thinking now? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's really funny. Um, you know, it, it, in the era of COVID-19, it's not cool to use this word, but it is true that we are in a worldwide pandemic for type 2 diabetes. It's just moving a whole lot slower than COVID-19. So, but yes, it, we're seeing enormous growth everywhere in the world. Uh, in fact, I always like to tell that to my patients. I say, you know, you're you're a member of what's a, a bigger and bigger club every day. You know, overtly, I would say absolutely not. You know, um, th there's no sense of, oh, well, this isn't such a big deal because everybody else has it. <laughs> so you, you definitely don't hear that. It is true, though, as we think about trying to help people make any kind of healthy lifestyle changes, there is this power of social norms um, that 
we tend to compare ourselves to the people around us. So when everyone in your community meets the criteria for morbid obesity, then you don't feel so big. Um, right. And everyone around you is eating at the places where there are enormous typical portions of food, then that's, that's quote unquote normal. And it's harder to make healthy changes when that makes you a little less than normal. Does that make sense? Okay. So the fact that diabetes is growing rapidly, does that tell you that what we're doing is not working? Or, I mean, what could you do about it? What can anyone do about it? What's your thought? We know that most people with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes in this country would tell you that, yeah, 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 I get it. This is a serious disease that, that can be harmful to my health. Yeah, got it. But what's become more where the inertia is, is there's not much sense that it's urgent. Like, yeah, it's serious. And, you know, I probably should, you know, lose weight or take my medications or check my blood sugar or see my doctor. And I'm going to do that, you know, when I retire or when I'm feeling better, or when life is easier. I'll deal with it later. And that that's become a lot more, I don't know, a lot more, but that's certainly a very common feeling. And that's something we're trying, we try to address all the time, that we should stop thinking about it as a non-urgent disease because invisibly, you know, if you're living with high blood sugars and high blood pressure and high lipids, you know, internal damage is happening, whether you can feel it or not. Um, right. We want to catch that way before you feel bad. That's the goal. And, but that's a challenge because we're, it's this issue of how do you, how do you make invisible disease visible? There are conversations with folks, it's talking to people about their numbers, et cetera. If we go, where's the place on this planet where we're seeing the biggest explosion of type two diabetes right now? And it's in China and India. And again, these are countries that are doing better with exports or making more money and people are moving into the city centers and away from the fields. So that's daunting when you think about how do we address it because of that issue. What parameters for someone that has diabetes should they be looking at? Should they be monitoring blood sugar and you know, getting, ins getting blood tests regularly to look at their insulin and triglycerides, et cetera? Like, should they just, you know, eat well and that's enough? I mean, what, what kind yeah. of recommendations are out there in terms of what they should look at and monitor? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of the most common recommendations, which I agree with, and then tell you a little story about how incredibly powerful this is. So that people don't get overwhelmed, I, we always recommend that people focus on the big three, the ABCs, that at least a minimum of every six months, every person with diabetes in this country, type 2 diabetes in particular, should have what's called, an, again, the A1C test. Sometimes if you want to really impress people, you can call it what is called the glycosylated hemoglobin test. And it's just a blood test usually done in your doctor's office or lab, again, every six months. And it tells you what your average blood sugar is over the past 10 to 12 weeks. And it is a very powerful predictor of whether you're at risk for running into the scary, scary, scary long-term complications from diabetes. We tend to always think about type 2 diabetes as a sugar disease, but it's actually a cardiovascular disease. So it's equally important to make sure you're getting your blood pressure checked at least a couple times a year, ideally at your doctor's office or even doing it at home, I guess is okay if you're doing it well enough and also getting your cholesterol checked. So there's more you could do. You mentioned some of the other things, but if you're doing the ABCs, A1C, blood pressure, cholesterol, cholesterol at least once a year, um, and you're talking to your doctor about it and, you, and he knows your numbers and you know your numbers and what your goals are, 
he can tell you, he or she can tell you whether or not you are in a safe place with your diabetes or getting to a safe place. And that's really what's key. Now, having said that, let me, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, yep. I was just reviewing um, a really impressive article from a, a group in Sweden, and they were looking at diabetes registry in Sweden. And because of the healthcare system there, they when they do a study, they say, let's look at people with type 2 diabetes here. They look at everybody with type 2 diabetes in Sweden, everybody. So it's more than a quarter million people with type 2 diabetes. And they said, let's compare this to a similar group of people in Sweden, but they don't have diabetes. And then we're going to follow them retrospectively over a period of six years and just to see what happens to people. And we know all these numbers. We know about their A1C and their blood pressure and their cholesterol. So they looked at this big group, average age at the, at the time when the study started, maybe they were about 60 or so, followed them over the course of six years. And what they found was interesting. First of all, if you just look at the big group of folks, the, all the people with type 2 diabetes, one finding was, yeah, boy, people with type 2 diabetes are an elevated risk of dying sooner, having heart attacks sooner, running into all sorts of other problems. Really bad news. But then if you look at those numbers, like these people's A1Cs and blood pressure and cholesterol, you see a very, very different story. So it turns out you can look at people who have in that study, they look at five things. So A1C, blood pressure and cholesterol, the fourth thing they looked at is what's called albuminuria, that means sort of early kidney disease. And then they look at whether or not you smoke. So five things, A1C, blood pressure, and cholesterol, albuminuria, and whether or not you smoke. So if you look at that subset of people with type 2 diabetes in Sweden, who in fact are in a safe place because their A1C and their blood pressure and cholesterol are all meeting the, your doctor's treatment targets, they don't have albuminuria, and they are not smokers, those people with type 2 diabetes look exactly like people who don't have diabetes. They're not dying sooner. They're not having more heart attacks. They're doing pretty good. So it's remarkable how important these numbers are and these tests are and why they can help to inform and focus your treatment. And we spent a lot of time seeing how there's so much powerful good news in these studies that <laughs> people don't talk about enough. Again, it highlights what we've been, what we've always been saying, which is good care and effort. Odds are good. You can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. In fact, there was a great, we use this quote. Let's see if I remember it from Sir William Osler, who was one of the most famous physicians from more than a hundred years ago. Mm. And he said, uh, the secret to living a long, a long and healthy life is develop a chronic disease and take care of it. And we're seeing that more and more these days. People with, have been diagnosed with chronic conditions like diabetes, taking the bull by the horns and doing great. In many cases, doing better than people don't have. And that's the big news. That's what we want to share with everybody. Well, that's really good. That's much more positive than what I thought, you know? Yeah. You need to, you need to get the word out. It doesn't mean you're going to be fine. It's just we want people to know this is what's possible with good care. Um, yeah, that, that, that sense. You could still live a full life and as long as you take care of stuff, you know? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And we're seeing, again, it's... I want to be clear about this. There's still horrible things that are happening to folks. I mean, terrible complications that are occurring, you know, kidney, kidney dialysis, all sorts of, you know, you know, vision problems. But that's because our healthcare support and system really isn't supporting people with diabetes in the right way. People are still fearful about the medications that have been recommended. Our efforts to try and follow a healthy lifestyle flies in the face of how cheap 
pizza is <laughs> and, and um, many of our you know, common American lifestyles. So we're working on it. And I think we're going to see even more and more benefits as the years go forward. Well, I would, I would think that your clinic's probably very innovative. It has a really good level of care. You know, if, if someone's getting the standard of care, what do they get when they go to an endocrinologist, a diabetes doctor? I mean, is the care, uh, you know, a pretty high level or is it just like barely anything? Like what, what's the typical experience? Yeah, typical varies a lot around this country. So first of all, I should tell you, if you have type two diabetes, what's important to know is that maybe only 10% of people with type two diabetes, only 10% will ever see an endocrinologist will ever see a diabetes specialist, that the vast majority of people with type 2 diabetes are receiving treatment from a primary care provider who's not a diabetes specialist. And that can still be good treatment, but it's a problem wow. because your PCP isn't going to know as much as a diabetes specialist, mostly because your PCP has to know everything about everything. And so, so they're understandably going to be limited in that way. So in terms of being really up to date about you know, the coolest new medications, the coolest new treatment, following this, you know, enormous amount of research that comes out every day and being up to date is, an, is a big challenge. So, um, uh, and treatment varies. You know, we see in certain healthcare systems that are pretty well structured and organized, like, you know, out here in California, we have, you know, Kaiser Permanente, for example. We have, you know, these wonderful places like the Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, the Mayo Clinic system where you really can see comprehensive, awesome care for folks. But if you're seeing a single PCP out there in the world, you know, you might be getting good care, but you might not. Again, we know so few people are, are getting any kind of formal education. And um, I guess I have to say, I'm not sure. We don't even know how bad things are, but we, given how fragmented the American healthcare system is, we certainly are concerned that especially uh, Poor people in our society are, are getting quite substandard care. That would be our guess. Yeah, culturally, what do you see the differences? You know, like uh, Hispanics, Blacks, Whites, et cetera. Do they, how do they view diabetes? Do they view it differently? Well, two things about that. First of all, those groups are also somewhat more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. And, and that's, again, for gen, uh, to a large degree, for genetic reasons. Um, and we also see type 2 diabetes is more common in the poor in America. Um, probably because of what, how following a healthy way of eating is can be more expensive, um, as well as having poor health care. So you have a problem where you're having limited health care amongst people of limited insurance and are poor, and you have higher rates of type 2 diabetes. So it's a terrible combination. So um, the other thing that we see, and it's, again, I, I can't, we got to be careful about not just sort of drawing some giant stereotype around these groups, but in general, there's often a, a lot of um, suspicion, especially in the African-American community, about um, white healthcare. Um, we see that in, oftentimes, we used to see that more in the Native American population. Um, Hispanic population, oftentimes we see a lot of, um, again, concerns and suspicions, and oftentimes that's not quite understandable too. Um, you know, a reluctance to follow recommendations for taking medications is, is how the most obvious way that is um, seen that um, somehow, um, you know, I'm not sure I can, I trust the healthcare system. And, and we have a big problem in this country with um, 
medication adherence. We have wonderful and effective medications. Many people quit taking their medications over time. And to sometimes that's because of cost, but sometimes that's because of suspicion and, and mistrust. If you don't trust your healthcare provider, odds are pretty good. You're more like, well, actually we have good studies. Oh, I've, I've felt that before. Yeah, I know for sure. Yep, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. Trust, t- trust tends to uh, limit people's willingness to stick with some prescribed pill or injectable medication, which makes things even worse. So it's, you know, when people get the care they need, when you really have comprehensive care, when you have an oper- when you have a, a physician you trust and like and can see on a regular basis or some sort of contact with or a nurse practitioner, it really makes a big difference. And we need a better healthcare system in America. <laughs> that's, that's the problem here. Well, very good, Bill. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your clinic? And I don't know if you're doing much telemedicine. You know, Where can they go from here to find out more? Well, if they want to find out more about us, the, the, our website is as behavioraldiabetes.org, behavioraldiabetes.org. Um, we do some, but not too much telemedicine, just because from a licensure point of view, we're kind of limited to working within our states. Um, but there's a lot of... It, fun things on our website. There's things that they might find to be of value. They're welcome to get in touch with us. And if we can be of any help to anybody, anybody in the world, we do our best. Um, so, but uh, please come visit us, uh, behavioraldiabetes.org. Very good, Bill. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you're doing this and thanks for asking. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.